Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Last week we learned about contact, an event in which a subject is aware of an object. This simple relation of self and other causes a lot of problems because we tend to go on to crave and appropriate the object. But is that object what we think it is? Objective unreliability. The downstream links of dependent co-arising presume a substantial outer world grounded in natural reality. But how reliable is contact in the outer world? There are, in fact, many observable inconsistencies in the outer world that demonstrate that it does not keep pace with what we presume of nature. I need hardly mention the most obvious examples, mirages, hallucinations, optical illusions, magicians, sleights of hand, which reveal themselves as illusory when they become inconsistent with other sources of evidence within the outer world. More pervasively, the outer world appears consistently more permanent, more pleasurable, more personalized, and more beautiful than natural reality could possibly be. The Buddha summarizes this point in terms of the four perversions alluding to this mismatch. Perceiving Perceiving permanence permanence in what is impermanent perceiving pleasure in what is suffering, perceiving a self in what is non-self, perceiving beauty in what is foul. Beings resort to wrong views, their minds deranged, their perception twisted. Elsewhere, the Buddha asks us to keep in mind three signs corresponding to the first three of these perversions that apply to everything in the phenomenal world, impermanence, suffering, and non-self. Without bearing these in mind, we tend to think that our car will last indefinitely, pristine in appearance and function, and that our spouse and we will live happily ever after that we will both be forever young, and that we are indestructible. We feel, crave, and appropriate on the basis of such presumptions, but then later, faced with rust, dents, and breakdowns, with old age, sickness, and death, we will suffer because we expected otherwise. Everything in the outer world, even as we experience it, if we pay attention, is in a state of flux, continually born of conditions and also dying with conditions. The food we buy, our furniture, our car, our own bodies, even mountains, everything and everyone we cherish will be lost to us one by one until the ones that remain lose us. 
The world is slipping by like sand through our fingers. There's no happy ever after with regard to the things or people of the world. We have been duped because we presume that enduring substantial objects exist in nature. We particularly suffer when what we cherish is closely identified with ourselves, such as our immediate family members or our bowling championship, duped because we presume a self. We allow ourselves to crave because we do not fully apprehend and live by the three signs of the false promises of the outer world. Reflecting on impermanence, suffering, and non-self reveals the false premises that underlie much of the world as we have grown to experience it. As an empirical matter, the three signs win all debates, yet we find it perplexingly easy to overlook them because of our presumptions about objects in which we seek substantiality. The three signs remind us of the primary human absurdity that we presume the world out there in our own minds in a certain way, then we take it seriously as natural reality, then we become infatuated with its objects, and then we crave them much like Pygmalion of Greek legend. The three signs remind us that these objects are by nature unreliable and explain why they cause us distress when we have a stake in them or try to identify with them. These reflections aim at the fading of passion. Our infatuations are over things that are too hot to handle, things that are not what they promise. A meaningful life lies elsewhere. In general, we experience an outer world in which things are reliable, more enduring, constantly agreeable and personalized than what, in fact, consistently turns out to be the case as the experienced world plays out. In whatever way they presume, thereby it turns out otherwise. As a result, our phenomenal world is littered with the shards of broken promises. The Buddha expresses this as a conflict between thisness and otherwiseness, such that life is a vain struggle to withstand otherwiseness. The man who has craving as his second and keeps going around for a long time does not transcend this samsara, which is an alternation between thisness and otherwiseness. We saw in previous chapters how craving-nourished growth is twisted around self-interest, producing uneven coverage of perceptual and conceptual fields. Moreover, because we are captivated by what we think is reliable, it's a source of suffering. If it's impermanent and a source of suffering, it cannot be ourself. Our immediate experience of the outer world simply does not keep pace with the unfolding of what we presume of reality over time. To this extent, its fidelity to what is really out there is skewed. Intrusion from within. 
We mentioned the fourth perversion, beauty, as unreliable. It also stands as a good example of how we tend to project what would otherwise be inner factors into the outer world, then take them as real. That we do this is well acknowledged even in popular culture, as when someone wise tells us, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and all of us nod in assent. Still, few of us fail to presume that beauty is an essential property of a person, of the gemstone, of the symphony, or of the landscape out there. Our subjective response intrudes into our objective experience, and we can't seem to help it. Similarly, we classify people out there as good or evil, jerk or numbskull, according to how well inner needs are being met in a given situation. Notice that even a close friend out there can momentarily appear as an ogre because of some disappointment we experience, only to morph back into her more amiable self after we cool down. Likewise, that a rattlesnake is scary is not essential to the rattlesnake, but involves our inner response to it. But notice not entirely, it is also dependent on the teeth, venom, and unpredictable behavior of the rattlesnake. Clearly, a degree of projection is going on from the inner to the outer world, but how commonly and how deeply does this happen? The Buddha tells us, All phenomena are preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. This suggests that we cannot separate mind which marks the inner world, from anything we experience, even in the outer world. Nothing in the world is entirely grounded in reality. Let's consider some examples. Our understanding of what is out there is also conditioned by what we want to or imagine ourselves doing with it. A real estate agent sees a landscape as property, a miner as a mineral resource, a painter as nature manifest in all its glory. A wooden horizontal surface with legs under it is a footstool, a stool, or a table, depending on how we imagine our bodies moving in relation to it. And what makes a fan a fan has little to do with physical composition. Science as methods for probing more deeply into what is going on in natural reality than our senses afford us. In the outer world, there is something called vanilla, and it has a delicious flavor. Science tells us that the primary compound of vanilla has the molecular structure C8H8O3. There's nothing intrinsic to this structure to account for vanilla's delicious flavor. For all we know, the taste of feces for a dung beetle could well be how vanilla tastes to us. Yet we attribute the flavor to the vanilla, not to ourselves. Even Galileo so long ago maintained that although objects exist in time and space, that is, in natural reality, 
Tastes, odors, and colors exist only in consciousness, to be wiped away if no one were there to experience them. In fact, modern science bears this out, for what we experience as being vibrant red in the outer world is not reducible to measurable wavelengths of light, but also depends on the physiology and neurology of human visual perception and on various contextual factors combined, which emerge only in deep levels of cognitive processing. There's a more deliberate way that the inner world intrudes into the outer, that is through self-reflection. Subjective experience is generally in the foreground. We look past it if we notice it at all. However, we might turn our attention deliberately towards some factor of the subjective world to observe our own suffering, the arising of anger, our breath, a physical pain, as we do in meditation. As we do so, what we find there is objectified into something reliable, discrete, substantial, standing in relation to other objectified factors. It's as if the subject-object boundary follows attention into what we previously presumed to be within our subjective inner world. Sorting the world into inner and outer is more challenging than we at first think, and possibly the whole endeavor is moot. For both worlds are deeply intertwined and both are produced by mind. Withholding this effort, the outer world ceases to be something separate from ourselves. And when this occurs, there is no place for the personal self to dwell. The cessation of contact. Contact is weakened through understanding the unsubstantiality of the outer world and by creating dispassion for its objects. This is a contemplative project that continues as we head upstream. Contact ceases with the cessation of its undergirding presumptions, the subject-object duality and the natural attitude. We can identify three stages to carry this insight forward in the Buddhist teachings, analysis, practice, and experience. If we want to evaluate how reliably our local newspaper, the Daily Trumpet, is reporting the news, we could either do our own investigation and compare it with theirs, or we can more easily visit their newsroom and watch their journalistic standards at play. Are they checking their sources, verifying claims, conducting background research to understand the context of events, or making things up? To understand how reliably the outer world reflects reality, the Buddha similarly takes the second approach. He says virtually nothing about what reality is like, but questions the professionalism of the various identifiable cognitive factors involved in constructing the outer world's appearance of reality. We have begun this kind of analysis here, and we will, in following talks, learn more about how the Buddha prosecutes his analysis relentlessly, step by step, 
while attributing contact to senses, eye, ear, etc., and then analyzing the cognitive architecture of the senses and ultimately tracing back the subject-object duality itself to the fundamental nature of cognizance. Meditation practice allows us to examine more directly the conditioning factors of contact. We begin by returning to experiencing the five aggregates, appearance, feeling, perception, formations, and cognizance, as successively more complex modes of awareness. These remind us to begin with that nothing we experience is separate from the subjective mind. In addition, through samadhi, we can back up from cognizance and formations to bring awareness to the level of bare attention, which is to say to appearance. At this level, the subject-object duality should vanish. There's awareness without differentiation into self and other, only pure events of seeing and hearing. I think for many meditators, this will be familiar. Bare awareness fails to grant object status to what is experienced. But when we reverse the ascent into samadhi to restore the other aggregates, the outer world becomes substantial and then more substantial. As a hedge, Nyanananda suggests that meditators who practice labeling thoughts not use labels like sound, sound, odor, odor, for these tend to refer to things out there and therefore ask to be endowed with object status. Rather, they should use things like seeing, seeing, hearing, hearing, which comprehend experiences in a more refined way as a whole, without explicitly acknowledging the duality. The practice of relinquishing contact in meditation seems also to be reflected in a place where it has been largely unnoticed in the common insight refrain of the Satipatthana Sutta. In this way, he abides contemplating body as body inwardly, or he abides contemplating body as body outwardly, or he abides contemplating body as body both inwardly and outwardly. Or else he abides contemplating in body their nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in body their nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in body its nature of both arising and vanishing. Or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness and he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This passage is repeated as for body, so for feeling, mind, and phenomena. Among these is experience the object inwardly, which would be as no object, outwardly objectifying it, and then seeing from both perspectives at once, a practice seemingly directed precisely at gaining insight into this critical link of contact. The unmediated experience of non-duality is praised as a fundamental step in spiritual awakening in many religious traditions, including some Buddhist traditions like Zen. 
We find evidence of this in the Buddha's teachings as well. When, Bahiya, there is for you in the seeing only the seeing, in the hearing only the hearing, in the sensing only the sensing, in cognizance only the cognizance, then, Bahiya, there is no you in connection with that. When Bahia, there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When Bahia, there is no you there, then Bahia, you are neither here nor there nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. It would seem that Bahia is being given a superhuman task after lifetimes of routine bifurcation into inner and outer. But I think we can get a handle on what is going on here more easily with respect to ear and sounds than with respect to eye and visual appearances. Consider the way we listen to music. At first, we are aware of a loudspeaker or an orchestra playing and the ear responding, me, loudspeaker, and hearing. However, as we relax into it, we may experience pure music for music's sake as it bubbles up in the mind, whence we care not. The object out there disappears, and with that the self. Nothing but music or hearing remains, with no distinction between awareness and content. Probably the reason this works for music in particular is that the hearing itself is more captivating than the orchestra or the loudspeaker. The music itself is the entertainment. This experience is beautifully animated in the Toccata and Fugue scene in Disney's movie Fantasia as the orchestra fades away in favor of visual images and musical notes. T.S. Eliot references this process when he refers to Music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. It's fun as well as instructive to explore the various dimensions of experience in this way.